0: thank you worship team that was wonderful and got to take care of a little business before we get into God's word this morning just got to say go Pats right come on yes all right let's get to the Bible I recently came across an interesting article in The New Yorker. The Mark of a Masterpiece. Supposedly, there are art scholars who have an eye eye for recognizing masters' unknown paintings. One such scholar is Martin Kemp. Every few weeks, he gets photographs and paintings. They arrive to his 18th century home. The author of the article tells us that many of the artworks are so decayed that their once luminous colors have been washed out. Their tiny coats of varnish darkened by grime and riddled with spidery cracks. It is Kemp's mission to scrutinize each painting with a magnifying glass and to determine if this is indeed a work of the master Leonardo da Vinci. This business of authenticating art is considered a rare, mysterious, and often bitterly contested skill. The author comments, his opinions carry the weight of history. They can help a painting become part of a world's cultural heritage and be exhibited in museums for centuries or cause it to be tossed into the trash. His judgment can also transform a previously worthless object into something worth tens of millions of dollars. Wow. I mean, talk about someone's opinion carrying a lot of weight. Well, while Kemp does rely on certain vetting techniques, he also notes that the recognition process is something like a sixth sense. He states, the initial thing is just that immediate reaction as when we're recognizing the face of a friend in a crowd. You go on later and say, I recognized her face because the eyebrows are like this and this was the color of her hair, but in effect, we don't do that. It's the totality of the thing. It feels instantaneous. Martin Kemp's explanation of recognizing a masterpiece sounds very much like the language written in our own Declaration of Independence on Human Dignity. I want you to hear these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So self-evident truths are those truths that are so plain that the authors don't feel the need to defend them. Unalienable rights are those rights that cannot be taken away on the grounds that we share dignity. Because we are humans. Now who gave them these rights? Who gave us these rights? Was it an act of Congress? Did it have something to do with the nine justices of the Supreme Court voting and saying it is now constitutional? Or maybe we all just collectively, through a Gallup poll, decided that we have these rights together. No. These rights come to us. These truths are plainly revealed to us in God's Word in Genesis chapter 1. You see, if you search for human dignity anywhere outside of the Bible, you're going to find some inconsistent, maybe even harmful expression of it. However, as we open up the pages of the first book of the Bible, we find that we all share the marks of a masterpiece. So I'd invite you, if you would, to open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, if you do not have a copy of the Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And we're going to do something a little different this morning. Uh, We're going to stand together. So if you don't have an ESV, grab a blue Bible and stand together with me. And we're going to read in unison Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. Let's read. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see five implications of human dignity tied into the image of God. The first implication is that God's image is the glue of human dignity. You see, when we enter into this passage, something special is happening in verse 26. For five and a half days, if we've been looking at this creation account, Moses is speaking of God saying things in the third person. But now, when we get to verse 26, he transitions into the first person. Let us. It's almost as if God is pausing in this act of creation, and he's considering within himself. He's going to make a humanity that is both glorious but that would also fall. God knows the end of the story. He knows that Adam is going to eat the fruit in the garden. He knows that because of that decision, it would bring about a trail of tears that would find its way into every culture, into every civilization. Uh, From the children of Adam on down to us, sin being like a virus, and each person carrying it along. He knows the implications of this leading to his son coming down to the earth and hanging on a cold, rugged, wooden cross. And yet, God created us. It must have been an incredible moment in the history of the universe. Now, as we look at this passage, we're reminded that God is a Trinitarian God. Let us Create man. Who is us? The Trinity. In Genesis one two, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the creation. In the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Goal of creation. And so here they are in this Trinitarian dialogue. God says, "Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness." What does that mean? What does it mean that you're created in the image of God? It must be something special. When you look at the word image and likeness, it appears four times in these two verses. The Bible is basically saying in big glowing letters, newsflash, there's something special about you that is different than the rest of creation. Don't miss out on this. This is a big deal. Understand. Understand. And so let's unpack what it means to be made in the image of God. First, it means that we have dignity because we, and only we, were created in God's image. Like those pieces of art are recognized as valuable because of the artist who created them, humanity is imbued with intrinsic dignity because of the God who created us. Look at verse 27. You'll notice that that word created is repeated three times. It's the Hebrew word bara. God is essentially saying to us, I made you. Don't miss the point. And you are the apex of all of the created order that I have made. So consider this. If you were to travel throughout all of the world, say you were to go scuba diving in the coral reefs and you'd see all those beautiful fish with the various colors and the corals and the diversity of life. Or you were to go off into the jungles of the world and see diversity of plants and diversity of animal life like nothing else we see in the rest of planet Earth. Or say you were to ascend to the highest mountain and look out at the grandeur of the creation or stand next to the power and the magnitude of the molten rock of the volcano or even say that we had the capacity to traverse the universe, we could go hundreds of thousands of light years beyond the Milky Way and see where there is that coalescing of the dust and particles of a protostar. And that star bursts forth into light. In all of these travels, you would see nothing more beautiful nor more wondrous than the creation, the birth of a human being. Why? Because humans are the crown of creation. R. Kent Hughes writes, The greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The child once was not now is a created soul. He or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul shall live. Another thing that we see is that the image of God means that we can have a relationship with God. This is your nobility as a human being. To know God, to love God, to be in relationship with God is the most fundamental component of who we are. This is why Blaise Pascal said, Every human heart has a God-shaped vacuum. This is why Augustine would say similarly, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. Basically, our hearts are designed to crave relationship with God. I also want you to see that we each have dignity wholly apart from our circumstances. Now that is a counter-message to what we receive today. Circumstances have everything to do with your value, we're told. How is worth determined? Well, what family did you come from? What kind of job do you work? How much money do you make? What's your educational background? Uh, Are you a physically fit person? Are you attractive as a person? And let's just stop there for a moment. I mean, attractiveness, it changes every two years. I mean, it's completely outside of our control. My body type, my, the symmetry of my face. I mean, I can't do anything about that. I was born like this. And who says that some self-proclaimed expert gets the right to determine whether or not you're beautiful? What do they know? There's only one who determines value. As a Christian, you should look at people differently you should look at yourself differently. C.S. Lewis said that you're never speaking to a mere mortal. You are talking to an eternal being. In God's universe, let's just be clear, and it's His universe, everyone matters because His image is everything. So all the differences about us. In every case, we're still a a person created in the image of God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old, PhD or didn't pass third grade, healthy or sick. God's image extends from the moment of conception when I was just a tiny bundle of cells all the way through my life until I breathe my last breath. We each have dignity wholly apart from our circumstances because His image is everything. I want to introduce you to someone if you don't know her. Uh, She's a beautiful girl. Her name's Rachel Feenstra. Her mom likes to call her princess on Facebook, and I can't blame her for that. Now, as far as we know, there are only 3,000 to 4,000 people in the world who have Rachel's She's 24 years old, and if I understand this correctly, she is the oldest living person suffering from a condition called Acardi syndrome. She's a miracle. And i got to tell you, I attribute her longevity to her parents, Joel and Lori. Um, they have showered this precious girl with love, affection, and care because she's their princess. And they have brought much glory to Jesus because they did this. Rachel's syndrome causes several major problems that took place at the chromosomal level before she was born. She's clinically blind because her retina have tiny holes. Uh, She has had mental challenges because her body never formed a corpus callosum, which causes the two hemispheres of the brain to communicate with one another. And so processing complex thoughts and communication are things that Rachel will never do. Rachel also has severe scoliosis and kyphosis. The scoliosis uh, causes an S-curve of the spine, the kyphosis, an abnormal rounding of the back. On Friday, I spoke with Joel on the phone, and he was coming off of 18 hours of no sleep. He had just taken his daughter to Providence Hospital. She was suffering from an infection, and If you have some time today, take a moment and pray for her. And on the phone, I asked Joel, Joel, would it be okay with you if I shared a little bit about Rachel with the church? I'm talking about the image of God. And he was emphatic, and he said yes. And he shared some profound thoughts with me. Joel said, as we care for Rachel, we are often approached by people who say things like, you two are amazing for caring for her. Even with all of her problems, you stick with it. You are such awesome people. And Joel said, you know, those are nice thoughts and all, but I don't care for her because I'm some kind of altruistic person. I do it because she was born in the image of God. Her life has value because she reflects his image. Some people can do lots of things. She just happens to be an image bearer who had chromosomal defects before she was born. I mean, that's good stuff for a guy that was on no sleep, huh? That's exactly right. Rachel has value and dignity just the way she is right now. She might not be able to do other things that other 24-year-old girls can do, but she doesn't have to be productive to be of value and worth and dignity. At the moment of conception, and even before that, in the internal mind of God, he Decided to make her in his image. She is a masterpiece, and she doesn't have to do or say anything to anyone to prove it. The Creator declared it, and that's all we need to know. And the same is true for you. Don't ever let your circumstances determine your sense, your understanding of your dignity. Whenever you say that I'm less valuable because of this or this or this going on in my life or because of the way I look, you say all the wrong things about human dignity. Those two things are not tied together. Your dignity is glued because of the image of God, because of your Creator. Now, if the image of God is so priceless, this also means that we must have enormous clarity as we consider some of the great moral issues of the day. Human dignity is glued by God's image. Even in the fallen world that we live in, even if dignity or if image has been marred, the Bible says that God's image is still present. Genesis 9-6 says, You shall not shed man's blood. Why? Because man was made in the image of God. James 3-9 tells us that we must not curse people. Why? Why? Because they are made in the likeness of God. So, marred in all, humans are image bearers. And so to devalue another human being is to essentially devalue the creator who created them. What does this mean for Christians? Well, it means that we should have a strong sanctity of human life position. And this is a big concept. At one level, it means that we must be defenders of the unborn child in the womb. Now, as I say this, friends, I say this in grace. I know that all of us have come from different places. We all came from somewhere. Some of us grew up and we were told that abortion was a right. Some of us understood that it wasn't an okay thing and we still participated in it. God is the God of grace even when we unglue things, God's grace intercedes in spite of that. But now we have to be responsible with what we know today. And I'm telling you, from the word of God, this is an absolute truth. This is a non-negotiable. Life begins at conception. I came from a biology background. I received a bachelor's of science. And I got to tell you, and. Biology 101, the moment that the sperm and the egg join together, simple biology says, life has started. Sanctity of life does not end at the womb, it extends throughout life so that you don't look at the terrorist and say that you're a waste of skin. You don't look at the drug addict and say that. You don't look at the prisoner and say that. You never say something like that of an image bearer. Never say to the refugee, not our problem, figure it out. We must be a people of compassion. Look upon the stranger in love, leave politics out of it. That's all muddled. The thing that we know as a Christian is that we're talking about basic human dignity of a person who is running scared and for their life. Sanctity of life goes into the hospital room and says no to physician-assisted suicide. But don't we have the right to choose when our life ends? Absolutely not. God is the giver of life, the sustainer of life. He's the taker of life. Sanctity of human life also deals with the way that we treat one another day after day. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that to hate someone from the heart was equivalent to murder. So, that there is this serious double standard to say, I'm a defender of the sanctity of human life, and yet to look at another image bearer, to say awful things about them, to hate them, to wish that they didn't exist. Serious conflict there, isn't there? We need moral clarity in this day of moral confusion. And the only way to be clear is to know why human life is precious and it has nothing to do with circumstances. It has everything to do with his image. God's image is the glue of human dignity. Now as we move forward, I want to look at another aspect of God's image. God's image and gender. Look with me at verse 27. The text says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this is a profound little verse. Notice that we see this kind of comprehensive idea that all people are equal, created in the image of God, but that there's something to do with our gender that showcases God to people in the world. So our gender identity and sexuality is uniquely tied into image-bearer. Now, Genesis is a book of origin, so when Genesis deals with something, even if it's terse like this verse or a very short story, as you move forward, it's very foundational for the way that we understand the rest of the Bible, for the way that we understand ourselves. So here we find this basic pattern of human life, male and female, he created them. So I want to talk about our maleness and our femaleness. To begin, your gender is not incidental. It's not accidental. It was a special creative work of God. It was assigned to you, and yes, it's the way that you should identify. The modern sexual revolution is saying things quite regularly, like gender is fluid, gender is a construct, But I've found that this philosophy that's being promoted today is very destructive for people. Especially for young people who are growing up in the adolescent world and they're already confused about a lot of things and we're just going to throw this into the mix. I want you to understand a couple of points about gender dysphoria. And this is from peer-reviewed research. Gender dysphoria is not genetic. Twin studies demonstrate this. In the largest study of twin transgender adults, 72% of the time, twins would differ on their gender identity. Now, when something is genetic in twins, it would mean that there would be 100% the same, right? So if 72% of the time it's different, it would say it's not genetic, right? Um, Transition. The idea of sexual reassignment. We understand that this doesn't solve the problem. We're told that transgender people suffer massive suicide rates because they haven't been affirmed by society. And while I agree that men and women struggling with gender dysphoria have been treated poorly by certain cross-sections of society, and I, I mourn for that, I do not believe that reassignment surgery deals with the underlying issue. In fact, we are seeing that adults who undergo reassignment, even in Sweden, likely the most affirming society in the world by their own definition, that the suicide rate in transgenders is nearly 20 times greater than the general population after reassignment. Listen, I don't want to be calloused with this. I don't want to broad brush over this. I wish I had more time to delve into this with you. Gender dysphoria is a real problem. It should cause compassion to come to your heart. The the solution is for you to care about these people and to love these people and to pray for these people. But I think that these people will find the most flourishing when they embrace their God-given gender. And we all must learn to be thankful to God for who he made us to be. Secondly, with regard to gender and God's image, we should not seek to blur the lines of maleness and femaleness in the name of equality. We are told today that equality means indistinguishability. There is an attempt to deny the real differences between the gender. So let's just be clear on something for a moment. Gender, uh, men and women, are 100% equal down to the very core of your essence. Nobody is superior to one another. Galatians 3:28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female for you are all one in Christ. Now he is not saying that there's no differences here. He is emphatically saying that you're equal And let me just say that when Paul wrote these words into his own day and age, this was an incredibly liberating sentence to women. He cared a lot about women. But there are real differences, and I don't mean stereotypes like women should be cooking in the kitchen and the man should be on the couch watching the game. It's like, that's baloney, dude. Get off your butt and do something, right? There are real differences, though, in our design and makeup that complete the human picture. And we should never deny real differences. I don't like when people say, I don't see color, for example. You should see color. Color's beautiful. Color is diversity. Color is a good thing. Don't sweep those things away. Ethnic differences, cultural differences, gender difference. Don't say they don't exist. They do exist. And celebrate it. I love that God made my wife different than me because i got to tell you, I would hate to be married to me. (laughs) In gender, we see this beautiful parallelism with the Trinity. We say in theology that within the Trinity, the three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory but there are distinctions in the roles. So the Son voluntarily subordinates himself to carry out the will of the Father in, re- in redemption. The Spirit subordinates himself to the united will of the Father and the Son. I mean, just think about that. I mean, wow. In some way, our equality and our difference reflects the glory of the Trinity. That's amazing. Now, We have gone through some tense waters here this morning. I understand that when we talk about things like this that we're kind of stepping on cultural toes, if you will. And I got to say, I I don't ever seek to say something to intentionally offend someone. That's never my goal. I'm not a a bully pulpit pastor where this is kind of like my hobby horse and I'm going to be pounding the pulpit every week and hitting these things. But you have to understand something. The Bible steps on our toes. This Bible is not a Democrat book. It's not a Republican book. It's not a white, middle class, straight, what other things can I, ident- I don't know. It's not an American book. It's God's book to humanity. And the beauty of this book is it should be translated in every tribe, tongue, nation across the world so that they could hear the words of God given to them. Now, we're living in a culture that is confused because culture, due to the fallenness of culture, has this internal guidance system that kind of moves away from God's truth. And that's why we need to go to God's word. If you want to know what the absolute standard is, it's found here. And we can't deviate from it. Now, as we look at God's image, we have one more implication. God's image and our purpose. Look with me at verse 28. The text says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in verses 26 and 28, we see that our identity as image bearers has something to do with this right to rule, this word dominion. God views you, he views me as royal figures. That's why David marveled in that psalm that we read earlier. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now Martin Luther, the reformer, believed that Adam and Eve were endowed with certain abilities pre-fall that we weren't. So physically he would say that they were kind of strong. Stronger than lions and bears. He would kind of wrestle around with them like puppies. And that they were incredibly intelligent. So if you wanted to think of the most brilliant philosopher, look no farther than our first parents. So we, we get an idea here of how significant the fall was. Even if Martin Luther's not exactly correct on that. One pastor says this, the unfortunate thing is that when man severs the tie that brings him to God and tries to cast off God's rule, he does not rise up to take God's place as he desires to do, but rather sinks to a more bestial level. In fact, he comes to think of himself as a beast, or even worse, a machine. But yet, despite the fall, there is still what we would call this cultural mandate. The idea of subduing the earth means to study it and and develop it and bring it under control. And this is the basis for all of that good work that you do. You know, you should not be pursuing a career. You should be pursuing a vocation. A vocation carries with it the idea that I want to contribute good to others through the good work that I do. In all the domains that we do, everything covers this agriculture, politics, industry, commerce, enterprise, exploration, art, music, drama, literature, education, research, technology. And believers should be passionate about all of these things. Different believers showcasing the glory of God as they do this good work throughout the world. To rule deals with our call to be stewards in creation. God's the one that created the cosmos, right? Psalm 24, the earth is ours. Is that what it says? The earth is the Lord's. So our call to rule on this earth is a call to stewardship, not ownership, which means we should not use and abuse this planet. We have been entrusted with its care by God. think of it like this. Say you were going away for a family vacation and you invited a friend to come over and watch your house for you. And you say to your friend, oh what's mine is yours. Feel free to use the entire house and you entrust them with things. Take care of the dog and feed the dog. Make sure that you bring in the mail. Clean up after yourself a little bit. But by and large do whatever you want to do. Open up the fridge. I'll even put some food in there for you. Now how would you feel If when you came home you discovered that your living room had been turned into a casino and all of your precious paintings and objects were destroyed all over the ground and your dog was dead. You'd feel like I do right now. You'd feel salty. God's called us to care for this earth. It's an entrustment. Now let's apply this. Obviously, we're not what we once were. We were created in the image of God, but that image is now marred. We were like that priceless masterpiece that has gone undiscovered. How is the image restored? In the book, The Cell's Design, the author tells of the finding of a lost painting of Picasso. It was the early 1970s, and a junk dealer came across five ink drawings while clearing out a deceased woman's apartment in London. He hung on to those drawings for a few years, then one wound up in the hands of an art dealer and eventually the dealer showed this mysterious drawing to Mark Harris, an art aficionado. And Mark, when he looked at it, was convinced that this was a lost Picasso. In fact, the drawing is referred to as Picasso's The Unknown Masterpiece. And it has provoked a heated controversy between the estate and Harris. The state and the beneficiaries denied the drawing's authenticity, which sent Mark Harris off on an investigation to find things that he believes authenticates this picture. For example, there's a fingerprint rolled in, that was rolled in the wet ink at the time the drawing was made. It appears at the bottom of the picture. The estate refuses to have it verified, insisting that Picasso didn't fingerprint during the 1930s. There is also a signature on the painting. A a Scotland Yard uh, handwriting expert identified features in the signature consistent with those of Picasso's works and many other features. So how will this painting be verified and restored? The evidence is compelling, but the estate wants nothing to do with it. Well, that remains to be seen. But with us, in our case, God went to great lengths to restore our image. And his opinion is the only opinion that matters in this case. How did he do this? Well, he did this through his son, Jesus. Remember the book of Colossians we studied and we were asking the question, who is Jesus? Well, in 115, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1-3, we see that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is God. And as you move on in Colossians, we read in verses 16-18 to that Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, and goal of the universe. Why does this matter? Well, because he has the right to authenticate masterpieces. His opinion is the one that carries the weight of history. He is the one who determines whether a a masterpiece will reside with him for eternity in heaven or remain separate from God in hell. His judgment can transform a, a fallen image bearer into a child of God. Well, how did he do this? The Bible says the image of God laid down his life. Colossians goes on and says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you want to know your creator? Do you want to be restored, even taken to heights beyond what we once were? Well, the Bible tells us that this comes about by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That in the best way that you know how, in your heart you say, Jesus, I I don't understand a lot about you, but this I do understand. That you died for me. And that that's really important. And I place my faith in that. Have you come to him? By coming to Jesus, you get that fullness restored that your heart is missing. So come to him. Would you bow your heads with me?